touch. Pause. Engage. G'day and welcome to Green and Gold Rugby Pod Slam 90, uh, sponsored by strike.com.au, Australia's biggest supplier of Bluetooth car kits. Joining me tonight, I've got Scott Allen. G'day, Scott, how are you? Mate, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well. I've, I'm feeling 100% today on, uh, on Sunday, I can say that. <laughs> it's a big lunch before we went to that game on Saturday, wasn't it? It was indeed, and um, it's amazing how different that game looked in replay, I must admit. Um, I think my emotions, <laughs> my, my, yeah, I was tired and emotional by the time I was watching that game for some reason. Um, I should, I don't, actually, I don't think I introduced myself. It's Matt Rowley from Green and Gold Rugby. But uh, yeah, no, I had a, I, as Scott was alluding to, I uh, made the trip up to Brisbane to see the Tars uh, play the Reds. And uh, well, it was a fantastic afternoon right up until the game, uh, I must say. <laughs> um, also joining me, so a bit of a, bit of a scoop for Green and Gold Rugby. Uh, those dedicated listeners would know um, this man has joined us, joined me before on a podcast, but um, he's going to become a bit of a regular and also maybe write a few things for uh, the site. Um, it's um, Andrew Logan or Logues. G'day, mate. How are you? G'day, mate. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very well. Um, good to have you on. I understand, you know, it's... Yeah, not... I'm excited. Yes. Well, it's a whole new... <laughs> it's a new horizon. It is. No, Green and Gold Rugby just offers people that, that freedom... Um, to basically wang on about anything in any style you want. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And that's, that is my strength, wanging on about stuff is, my, is definitely playing to my strengths. <laughs> good. All right, well, you're in good company because uh, we, we certainly like doing that. So, look, um, let's get stuck in. So a full weekend of, uh, of, of proper fixtures, um, almost none of which I actually tipped. So I walked away with, with two tips from the whole freaking weekend, um, which is, is not good. But... Um, the first game, which I think was one of the only two I did tip, which was the Rebels uh, going down to the Brumbies. Um, and let me just get this, this score up there. Um, so that was uh, 13.30 um, down in Melbourne. Um, so let's get, let's get some thoughts. Scott, mate, uh, what was your take on this game? Actually, I really enjoyed the game. I mm. thought the, um, the Rebels came out, started really well. They were, they were positive with everything they were doing. They had a strategy that looked like, and James O'Connor confirmed it at halftime, was to move the ball wide, try and get around the Brumbies. Um, the Brumbies had set up their defence in quite narrow um, sort of structure. So they were encouraging uh, the Rebels to play. In the first 10 minutes or first 12 minutes, um, the Rebels looked fantastic. Kirtley Beal was on fire. But then uh, the Brumbies started to get back into the game and... Um, they shut them down. One of the ways they shut them down was to take away their line-out options. If you were listening to the commentary, you would have heard Sharpie talking about the uh, the Brumbies gave them basically the front of the line-out mm-hmm. and said, well, if you want to win the ball there, that's fine, but then to play your wide game, you're going to have to throw two amazingly long passes to get the ball out to your 12. Yeah. And it just sucked the life out of the Rebels a little bit. They competed really well for the first half, though. And um, Remember, it was only 13-12... Um, or 13-12 up to the Rebels at halftime. But then, you know, a few key injuries really told. Um, Kirtley Beale took a knock 
on his shoulder or neck. I haven't heard much about what's happened since then, but he was effectively a passenger for most of the second half. Uh, James O'Connor went off uh, under the concussion rule. Uh, he didn't look happy that he'd been taken off. But you know, that, taking those two guys out really took a lot away from the Rebels. Um, they replaced Nick Phipps, who wasn't having a great game. They took him off reasonably early. Um, Gareth Bell, they took off reasonably early as well. So, you know, they took some big names out. And, you know, the Rebels just basically couldn't maintain the momentum. Um, Brumbies came out and played a very good second half. And really, they dominated and scored the bonus point try. Uh, they were very, very professional in what they did. Yeah, no, I thought so. And, um, I th- you know, I thought those uh, tactics you talked about were really interesting. I, I heard a bit of an after interview with Jake White. And he was talking about, you know, what did he say at halftime? Because they had a bit of footage of him obviously giving what looked like giving the team a bit of a serve. And he said it was really interesting. And, and they asked about David Pocock. And he said uh, one of the class things about somebody like a David Pocock who's got all that experience is apparently Pocock turned around and he talked about that tactic they'd been using, which was um, obviously to, you know, take on the, uh, you know, keep that centre field position and then also to contest. And, you know, he said, you know, keep going, guys. You know, this, you know, it'll pay. It'll start to pay off. Um, and I just felt that that's what you saw. I, th- I felt the Brumbies just kind of, they just, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel that they changed too much in the second half. Like you said, there was a few little tweaks maybe at the line-out time and stuff like that. But I just, my feeling on the game was that they just ground through the Rebels, you know. And then the, the, while the Rebels could kind of keep up through the first half, they really fell, up, fell away. And I just felt, you know, the Brumbies conditioning as well looked fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, they just, they just kept powering on and I think, you know, the Rebels just couldn't keep up. And as you say, those, those key changes, and this is why actually in my, I did a, when I did the, the preview of the Super Rugby tournament, um, you know, my feeling is that the team that could explode most spectacularly is actually the Rebels because I just think one or two injuries there um, and it could really fall away versus a force that I think have quite a few people that can kind of grind through. So um, anyway... We'll see what happened there. But, yeah, I mean, and some great performances in the Brumbies as well. I mean, Jesse Mogg had another stormer. Um, you know, he's looking, uh, he's looking pretty good. Do you, think he's, do you think he's a contender, Logues, for, uh, for, for a Wallaby jersey if he keeps going like this? Oh, I think that might be just a bit early for him um, at this stage. I mean, he's he's very new on the scene, and he's had a couple of uh, very two very good games. I, I don't argue with you one bit. Um, but there's a lot of contenders for the fullback spot, and there's a lot of options. Uh, you know, you you can you could potentially play uh, O'Connor. You can play Ashley Cooper. You could possibly play Drew Mitchell if you were if you were. Um, a bit down on numbers. You could play Curly Beal. You could play Israel Folau if you really wanted to take a punt. <laughs> yeah. But you know, for a guy like Mog, he's probably a little way off it yet. But if he kept that form for for seven or eight rounds or something, that that might see him pressing for a spot in the squad. Um, and you know, I think what you see about the Brumbies um, is a team that allows a youngster like that to play his own game because there's so much strength in other pockets of the back line. Mm. Um, and so he he has that ability to just get out there as a young guy and have the confidence of of the guys around him and have confidence in the guys around him also, mm. um, and just play his own game and and that allows those young guys to really show their potential and he's he looks very good, doesn't he? Yeah. Who who else stood out to you, Scott? Um, I actually thought uh, both 
uh, Tamani and uh, sorry, not Tamani, Tamua and Lilafano were very good. That ten twelve combination looks good. Uh, Andrew Smith was good at thirteen. Um, ben Marlon was exceptional again um, in everything he did. Line out work is just fantastic. But around the park, as we talked last week, you know he's, he really has muscled up and is becoming a bit of a hard man. Um, the Brumbies front row. I mean, they're completely dominating. Everyone they've played so far. Um, be interesting to see what happens when they get out of the Aussie Conference. Yes. How they go. But Stephen Moore, just brilliant again. Um, certainly, I look, I thought every player on the Brumbies team was very good. Uh, Nick White had another good game. The only guy, and this is surprising, didn't have a bad game, but Pocock didn't have the impact that you know I thought he might. And that's two games in a row. So he's just building into the season yeah um you know he, he had he did a lot of good things but the beauty with that team is it's not built around any one individual they are a real team all the way across the park yes yeah, for the for the rebels you know guys like i thought mitch inman really stood up his defense was good um james o'connell was good while he was on um kurt bill was disappointing again after the first 10 minutes but gareth Dolph surprisingly was very quiet um uh, both uh, their both their locks you know, again continue to show um, Luke Jones and uh, Hugh Pyle both very good, but it was an enjoyable game. Yeah, no, I thought it was. I uh, really enjoyed. I mean, I, I must admit the one thing I don't have the feeling yet. I mean, I know you just gave him a bit of a rap. I think to me, Tamur and Leiliofano. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm not criticising the performance. I'm yet to have been kind of wowed, though, if you see what I mean. Um, as far as a kind of, you know, as a real, and, it's, and probably it's, it's probably more Tamur I'm thinking about here. I mean, obviously in that 10 role. I, I, you know, there's not a lot I would criticise, but I just, you know, when we went to choose the team of the week, you know, and we're thinking, well, who was the 10 there? I mean, you know, mm. as, as much as I can't say Cooper in the Reds game, he didn't exactly blow my socks off either, but... I was I was left thinking, well, what did you know? Tamua just didn't jump out to me as the guy who really bossed that back line, um, and, and you know really looked like he was leading it. You know, I mean, I don't know if either of you guys saw enough to, um, you know, p- put me straight on that. No, I think you're well, I think right. They... Um, and the fact that Leo Lovano is playing twelve is um, it probably just says more about the options that the Brumbies have. You know, like a team like the Rebels, they're lucky enough to have the options there with with Beal and, and O'Connor and a couple of, and um, guys to be able to shift it around a little bit. But the Brumbies probably just don't have those same sorts of options, so they're probably forced to play Leo Lovano at twelve, where you'd much rather. I personally would much rather see him at ten, getting his hands on the ball, but it does compromise them at twelve if you put him there so mm-hmm. I think it says more, more about um, not such about his ability or form rather than just where the, where the um, Brumbies are forced to play him at the moment yeah so Scott did you have a, a different view or no, no I, I, I certainly I don't think um, he's he's out there Tamua's out there you know setting the world on fire but I actually think that's one of the good parts about the Brumbies as I said and, mm. and apart from I would say uh, Mog and Mullen were absolute standouts on the night everybody else just did their job really well um and they're not relying on you know individuals performing at a a very very high level Mm. um 
you know, yet I thought Cooper, and having watched the game back uh, and done some analysis on it, either Cooper's game is better than even when I first watched it. But he actually, you know, he was controlling the game uh, a lot more than uh, um, Tamua was. But, you know, you take uh, uh, Quade Cooper out of the red side, and there's a big hole there. Mm. Take Tamua out of the, the Brumby side, and they've got options. They can, you know, shift people in. So I don't think that's a team built around, you know, one or two individuals like the Reds are built on Genia and Cooper. No, you're right. Which mm. I think's a positive. Yeah, no, definitely. No, i really impressed with the Brumbies this year. And I, if there's anything that I walked away from this weekend, I mean, it's early, right? It's round two. Some of, and, you know, Tars has only had one game, for example. But, you know, out of these, looking at our conference, there was one team that I thought, you know, could potentially go anywhere outside of it. And that was, that was the Brumbies. Um, for the reason that you talked about, you know, they looked like um, they were kind of strong um, across the park. But anyway, so that's the Brumbies. Um, you know, the season seems to be marching on in the right direction. Um, Can I just make a, just a quick point on the Brumbies, though, too? And it's it goes back to, you know, exactly what we were chatting about before we came on air, just about, you know, early season focus and where do you focus. And, and the Brumbies are so much fitter, I think, than the Rebels. Um, they, you know, if you look at the stats towards the end of the game, all the line breaks were, were coming from the Brumbies. There was fatigue in the Rebels' defence. Their discipline started to go bad. You know, they gave away a lot of penalties. They were just very sloppy towards the end. And, and I think that speaks volumes about the Brumbies' ability to play the last 20 you know, the last 20 or 25 of a game. And um, and as Scott was saying a moment ago, you know, they're very even across the park. And I think that says as much about their conditioning um, as anything. You know, they don't have blokes falling off the pace in the last 15 or 20. Yeah. Uh, it makes them very hard, you know, very hard to get over. Yeah. Well, I mean, this this is what uh, – is it is – the, I want to say it's the Orange Rams. What's, what's the name of the team? Sorry, mate. <laughs> Sorry, the witch. <laughs> I want to call them the Orange Rand. Yeah. What do I want to call yeah. them? No, no, we're the emus. The emus. Sorry. Yes. Jeez, sorry mate. Just don't tell the me. The Orange Rhine. Yeah. <laughs> there, so, is, there is a team in our in our competition, the Narromine Gorillas, and I don't know of too many gorillas out at Narromine, but anyway, you know, for the Narromine listeners, we love your imagination. <laughs> well, so the, with, with the Orange <laughs> Emus, mate, um, I, yeah, from what you were saying, that this is in their future. Is, uh, is is a lot of conditioning by the sounds of things. <laughs> it's it's in their present. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. um, but I, I think now. that's you know at most levels of of rugby, well certainly at all levels of rugby, you can't continue to execute at a high level unless you fit. Yeah. Um, and certainly early in the season, the thing that's probably easiest to get right is your defence and your shape. It takes a lot longer to get your combinations working and to get guys who are playing in new positions alongside new players to know each other. Yeah. So the quick wins are, are with your fitness and your defence. And, and that's certainly something that Jake White, when he came on board last year, he spent a lot of time just getting guys fit. You know, And it does a lot for your culture as well. If guys get used to working hard and get used to working alongside their mates and get used to the fact that nothing comes easily and that you don't get anything for nothing um, then they take that into games with them and that you know that's worth a lot when you're defending on your own line after five or six phases you know yeah. well I mean um, so those are where the quick wins are I think early in the season well and there's and it's compounded I think by something that so I think it was either you Scott or Timsey pointed out last week which was that you know, by not by having a bit of a, a team of you know international no names um, by comparison to some of the others, 
you know, you, you've got those guys for a good preseason. You know, there's none of this, you know, they don't have the spring tour. Um, they definitely don't need a rest after a spring tour because they haven't had it. Um, so they get them a good long, good long run in, and that's kind of worked well for them, actually. So that's kind of the flip side of the guys like um, Jesse Morg and Ben Moen not being in Wallaby shirts is that, you know, they're around the team. Um, and, and a big upside when the captain, you know, as in Moen is there as well. So anyway, that, that's kind of run well for them for a couple of years. But, but speaking of fitness, because actually I'm going to use that as a segue into the next game, because even just in my emotional state on Saturday evening, uh, <laughs> as I sat sweating in the stands um, at Suncor, because it must have been around 30 degrees and it was humid and getting more and more humid as the night went on, I think. Um, it, it, there might have been other effects that I was feeling as well. But it really struck me, um, and, and watching the replay, though, in the cold light of day, how much I thought both sides, but especially the Tars, really suffered and just looked lethargic um, throughout that game. But I didn't know how much I wanted to put that down to the conditions or how much that's how fit or not they are. Because my impression was that um, one of the things that Cheka was going to be doing or Chica was going to be doing uh, with the Tars was was get them damn fit. So what was your take on that, Scott? When you, uh, sorry, uh, Logs, when you watched the game, do you, did you, you know, were they up to your... Were they up to the Orange Emu's fitness levels or do you think it was conditions or what? (laughs) They're a long way ahead of the the Emu's. But um, look, I thought the interesting thing about the Waratahs was they they probably the difference between them from last year and this year, as I saw it anyway, was they were probably harder on the ball and harder in the contact. Mm -hmm. So they appear to be more physical than perhaps what they have been. And it, it seems to me like they've been focusing on a style that will give them a chance to upset some of the New Zealand sides and perhaps some of the bigger South African sides like the Bulls and, and the Stormers. But, um, you know, with that really physical approach, so they, they seem to be very physical, but perhaps they've lost a bit of, um, you know, the long-term aerobic fitness that allows them to to run and execute under pressure when they're, you know, when they're under fatigue late in the game. I'd, they, they probably weren't as fit as I'd hoped, um, but maybe that's just been built up. You know, everyone was going, oh, they're so fit under checker, they're so fit under checker, and maybe it's just still early games, you know, early match fitness. I, I, I don't know. I thought they were harder at the breakdown, but they were very loose. They were very, you know, they just lacked real integrity um, in their in their shape around the park and, and just lacked real um, technically excellent execution. I just are very loose in some of their some of their play. And is that what you took away from the game overall? I mean, uh, when you you know when you look at it, I mean, what was the? I'm just looking back at what the score was in the end. You know, yeah, in, in look, I wasn't overly disappointed. I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of people, um, not that I sort of was really wanting one team or the other to win, but I, you know, if I was a Waratahs fan, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be too worried about it. I mean, I, I think. Uh, there were moments that let them down, particularly if you look at something like um, Tapuahi's try where Ed Quirk um, went through four defenders and then set him up, you know. Yeah. He should never have, have made that first little break and then be allowed to run away into the cover, you know. Um, and that was just very – that was just sloppy work, a little moment of sloppy work in defence, sloppy technique, just letting him get through there and then pull away backwards. Um and that, that's all I mean, you know, just those those little pieces were just sloppy and, and had they tightened up in close to the ruck there and if he if he hadn't made that little half break that he was allowed to go on with, well, then, you know, they're still well in the game and they don't lose it. So I just think it, little pieces of execution 
um, probably due to fatigue and fitness later on. Their collision fitness seems okay. They're just execution under fatigue is probably not as good. And But, you know, hey, who's great executing under fatigue in round two? Yeah. What about, uh, Scott, what's your view on this game now, having gone through it with a fine-tooth comb? Should we, well, should we be depressed as Tars fans? <laughs> um, and as I a man who you... tipped the Tars yourself, remember? I did tip the Tars. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, was, I, I was disappointed in the way the Waratahs played. Mm-hmm. Um, on Saturday night, I came away thinking, fair enough, it's their first game. The, the conditions, the humidity were, you know, they were unbearable, basically. And as a rugby a catch slippery ball, you know, I can understand the, all, there were lots of mistakes. You can put some of that down to rustiness because it's their first competition game. They did have an extra trial on the Reds, though. So, you know, they've played the same number of games. Um, I mean, the errors weren't as heavily lopsided to the Tars as I thought they would be. Tars made 14 errors in general play, 11 for the Reds. So both teams were struggling in the conditions. So that did have an effect. But first one of the things I noticed Saturday night, and I didn't understand why, was that the Waratahs were very slow getting support into the breakdown in attack. And having looked at it in detail now, and I've got a, a video piece to put up on Wednesday... I actually think that's a tactic. Basically, the entire game. So it wasn't, you know, you could say it was 20% or 30%. 80% of their attack, they have one-out ball runners who have got a good five to six metres on the next closest support runner. So when they go into contact, there's a lot of distance between the ball carrier and the support. That allowed the Reds to get in, slow the Tars' ball down. It also allowed them to get a lot of turnovers. Um, I think that's a tactic where they're trying to play this wider game. So the Reds, when you look at it, and the Brumbies, they get numbers into the breakdown. And sorry, Fisher told us last week, their plan is ball carrier plus three, but a minimum of ball carrier plus two. Waratahs, you know, in something like 70% of their breakdowns, went in with the ball carrier plus one. Mm. Now, that means there's guys wider available if you can get the ball quickly and move it to them. And therefore, you should have numbers on the defence. But if you can't get the ball out of the breakdown quickly, you've got a problem. You know, you, and then guys have to basically come in late and we just end up with a big mess. Um, I don't believe that they can be so poor that the guys were so you know, poor in conditioning that they couldn't keep up with the attack. And it looks like basically what they're doing is they've got a lot of distance between the ball carrier and the support runner so that they can move the ball wider or go for a wide offload. I don't know that's going to work. I know it won't work against the Brumbies. Mm. Um, you try that against the Brumbies and there will be turnover ball everywhere. Yeah. The other thing that, you know, I, I love attacking rugby. And for anyone who missed the Highlanders Chiefs game on Friday night, if you love rugby, you should watch it because it was just a spectacle and it was attacking rugby all the time. The pace was incredible. The skills were great. And, you know, Czech has been talking about we're going to play running rugby, we're going to attack I was looking forward to it. Then when I watched the game, and, you know, most of the attack they try to do is running out of their own 22. Yeah. And as wonderful as that is, you know, and, and Checker made the point that they want, they're going to keep doing it even though they dropped a few balls in their 22 and gave the Reds some cheap possession. But even when they held the ball, I think the first time that the, the 
Waratahs had the ball, you know, for any length of time. It was after they just scored their their first penalty. So it's three nil. The Reds kick off to them. The Tars have the ball in their own twenty-two. They ran seven phases inside their own twenty-two. They lost ten meters. Then they kick the ball out. It's ten meters past the twenty-two. So the Reds get a cheap possession, and they've basically taken seven phases to go backwards. Mm-hmm. They did that a number of times during the game. I fail to see how that is going to, as Robbie Deans would say, get you any profit. Mm. You know, <laughs> um, you know, maybe try one phase if it's not on. If there's something wide, have a crack. But then put the ball into touch. Get as much distance as you can. Don't play in your twenty-two. And the Reds and the, sorry, the Tars. You know, put down three balls in their own twenty-two, doing that. But as I said, even when they held the ball, they went nowhere. Yeah. So. I mean, I think they're still struggling, and will, from the looks of it, having watched the game again, they're going to struggle with this pattern they're trying to play until they get the balance right. Because the interesting thing was that on the five occasions they had the ball in their own territory and should have run the ball, they kicked it. So when they shouldn't have been running it, they ran it. And when they should have run it, they kicked it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they're still. I mean, I, Foley's got a few good raps, but I, I think they're still missing a bit of direction from somewhere, aren't they? Um, as far as making whoever it is making uh, decisions on the field, um, I, I, I noticed that as well when I was watching the game. In that, I guess what I was expecting was there to be another. You know, it's an Aussie derby, so I was expecting there to be a ding dong battle around the breakdown, and there wasn't. And, and but. I, I know what you're saying about with that tactic because what was really interesting, I thought, is a lot of people have talked about. I know you've you said it uh, today, Scott, on uh, the the website on Green and Gold Rugby, was about about how quiet Hooper was, um, and uh, you know how he you know he didn't seem to be at his normal normal best. And I was thinking, well, why is this? Because you know, having seen the game the first time around, I thought, you know, what's going on? And as I watched, I just kind of thought, in, in a, from a defensive perspective, anyway. Um, you know, he was never really near the breakdown. He was always, you know, two or three men out because, you know, like you say, they really weren't kind of stacking it. I was surprised, though, that the Reds kind of played along with that. Um, I would have expected to see, I mean, I think Quirk had a few couple of little runs and obviously, you know, one of them kind of led to a, led to a try. But I, I kind of felt, you know, you would have thought maybe the Reds would have seen exactly what you were talking about, which was that they were looking, obviously going for a fan defence and to really kind of push a few numbers through the breakdown like they were trying to do against the Brumbies. But both sides seem to play to that pattern, um, you know, and, and for whatever reason. Um, and, and, and just going, to, going back to Hooper, though, so that was, for, for whatever reason, he w- was told he obviously wasn't needed around the breakdown. Um, but then we know that he's, his strength isn't necessarily as like a poacher um, or a counter-rucker. He's much more around uh, his attacking skills and his running. But, it, you know, the Tars, I guess what's becoming obvious is, you know, you've got, you know, Tamani seems to be one of their big ball runners. Then you've got Palu, and then you've probably even got Pilotta now. And I think those three guys are kind of like the choices before you get to Hooper. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him, especially if they stay with that defensive tactic that you've just outlined, as far as, you know, what, what's his role going to be um, if, they, if, if they play in those two ways. Um, the only other thing I was going to say in watching in, in retrospect, you know, in the cold uh, light of day, th- there were actually some very good r- pieces of play with the Tars. Um, the, the bits that I didn't think were good were when they just shoveled, shoveled some sideways ball, usually in the direction of um, Falau. I thought he got sold some just very ordinary stuff. Um, there was no depth. Um, every, it was all telegraphed. 
everyone was running sideways and he was the guy who got it with three reds on him um, who had obviously decided they were going to tackle him high and try and negate the offload um, and not get stepped. So, I mean, I thought that was pretty ordinary. But what I did like was that, um, and, and where, they made, where they had their most profit was, kind of, um, was uh, kind of backing up from depth and the short little pop passes. Um, and just little offloads, um, you know, uh, just close to the man. I thought that looked a lot better. Um, and, 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 and there was a couple of times, I mean, they, you know, they had a couple of great attacking moves. Unfortunately, one of them, which ended up with that, you know, the pop pass going f- um, uh, from uh, the, you know, the prop to um, Tapawai. Kepu to Tapawai. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a lovely little pop pass just to the wrong guy. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I thought there were some things in there that made me, I, I didn't, oh, I don't know, I wasn't as depressed as I was on Saturday night, but like I say, there, there might have been some, you know, other substances involved there as well. Um, um, alcohol, I mean, uh, you know, so, uh, but um, anyway, I, I thought there was a few things in there, but yeah, there's something still a little bit amiss. And I think that question mark at 10 is a, still a big one. You know, there's no one there who's clearly the boss to me and is making the decision of, to your point, Scott, about when those decisions were made. You know, are we, are we running everything out of our 22? Are we kicking it? What are we doing when? Um, and, and, and who's making that decision? Um, I think that'll be helped when they have Beric Barnes back. Mm. Um, you would think that he'll probably slot into 12, and that'll help Foley. Um, as long as... Michael Checkers belted Barnes around the ear and said, "Don't kick it at every opportunity," mm. um, which he's, he's clearly he's, he was not happy that they'd kicked the ball uh, in the press conference afterwards. He was very clear about that. He said, "Even though we turned over the ball, we will keep doing this. We are not going to stop." He was very definite on it. So, look, the the, the tactic of the wide spacing between the attack and the support. I agree with you. When they were tight. And they were supporting from depth in behind. Mm. They looked much better. Yeah. But 80% of their attack was a single runner with the support runners, you know, a good five to ten metres either side of him. Mm. And that's when they didn't look good. Mm. But it happened 80% of their attack. So I don't believe that that was the players have made a mistake. I think that's a tactic they're trying to use mm. where they just want to basically have the spacing. If the uh, defence is narrow... They'll try to get outside them. Mm. And I don't mean go all the way to the touchline. I mean, you know, 10 metres outside the defence. Mm-hmm. So that could have been just a tactic for the Reds. That's why I say you know, I'm looking forward to seeing the next game to see whether that's a tactic. If it is a tactic, and I don't think the Reds exploited it very well at all, the Brumbies will kill them if they run that tactic against the Brumbies. Yeah. And, and any team that chooses to play two scavengers or poachers will kill them as well. Um, and I think coaches will be watching it. And if this is part of the great master plan, not just a plan for one game, then I think the Tars will, will have problems through the season. Well, I think what it what it does show, um, and it's certainly backed up by a few of the stats, like total runs and line breaks. None of the loose forwards figure anywhere in uh, in runs or in line breaks. And as we saw, they didn't really figure in the breakdown either. So you just wonder whether guys like Palu and Hooper and Dennis are just sort of caught between by this style and by this tactic. Um, you know, not not going in and, and contesting and jackling, um, not running close into the ruck, um, sort of drifting and trying to push wide and play that wider game, but perhaps not getting the ball that they should be getting and 
and not really actually appearing anywhere. And if you look at all those guys, you know, Palu aside, Palu probably appeared a few times, and but Hooper was very quiet. Dennis was very quiet. You know, there, there wasn't a lot from any of them, and you just wonder if that's sidelining them a little bit that style. Mm. So I mean, I, I mean, and a lot of that that kind of that drift that you were talking about, Scott, seemed to. Um, you know, targeted on getting the ball to fall out. So, Logs, I mean, I guess we, you know, we'd be remiss. We'd be the only media outlet not to discuss Falau, um <laughs> yeah. this week if we didn't. Um, what, you know, give us your your ten second wrap on it. What, how, what should we be thinking? Oh, about Israel Falau? Yeah, his first run out. Um, look, the, I, he's clearly a very talented footballer. Um, he's playing a brand new code. He's playing with a team that is, as Scott has just very clearly outlined and very well, I thought, um, outlined that they still are finding their own style. So to be playing a new code with new guys in a team that still collectively around you is not certain of its style, um, in a new position... I think he he did very well. I think he need he clearly needs work in contact. You know, he he needs to be taught more about how to handle contact when he gets into it because he was you know he was stripped two or three times. But that's that's coachable stuff. Like that's not innate. That's not an innate flaw in Israel Israel Folau as a footballer. That's just that's just stuff he'll learn and, and coach. I mean, you can see the guy's an athlete, and I think once the Tars work out their style, and certainly I think once Beric Barnes comes back into it and gets some more organisation into it um, and allows him to play his game. What I was saying before about the Brumbies, you know, allowing a guy like um, Jesse Mogg to to just play his own game because he has the um, or he's he's able to have confidence in the guys around him. I think that would make a huge difference to Israel Folau. Yeah. Uh, and you know those those tries he scored in the trials, they're not a flash in the pan. That's the the sign of a guy who knows how to find his way to the try line, but he can't do it on his own and he certainly can't do it from his own 22 so um, they need to be able to set him up and give him a chance to run in space um, at some players that are perhaps square on or a bit isolated and, and then see how he goes I, I think he's looking considerably you know, oh, I think he looks pretty 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 good and um, he's only going to get better and I think he'll get a lot better mm. I don't know, don't think he'll make the wallabies this year but I think he'll be a standout for the Waratahs um, probably around round five or six once he settles a bit. Scott, what about from a Reds perspective? Who, Sorry, that was much longer than 10 seconds. That's all right, mate. What about... Uh, well, there's a, there's a lot fewer than the column inches than he's attracted everywhere <laughs> else. Right. Um, Scott, what, what was your take from a Reds perspective? Who, who stood out to you? Oh, the back row were fantastic. An average age of 21, you know, and all three of them really put in. Shats probably didn't, you know, feature in the headlines as much, but he did plenty of work. Did, you know, did the sort of work you'd want a number eight doing. He's not the big ball-carrying number eight type, but, gee, they were good. Ed Quirk, um, I have had questions about him for some time. Mm-hmm. He's, got, he's always had potential. Uh, I don't think he's ever actually grabbed the opportunities he's had. Well, he certainly has now. Last week, he's been really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, I think that's a, an opportunity, a guy where he's come in and said, that's the spot. It's available now. Higgins not here, and I'm going to grab it with both hands. He's going to be the Reds' long-term six, I would say. Well, he just looks. I mean, we've got a picture. I, I, I uh, if you do a picture picture search for him, you'll see a picture of him. I don't know. It's only about two or three years ago. I think he was in like one of the the uh, 
one of the uh, club finals or something. He's walking off the ground with a cut head, and um, which is hard to spot with his hair, obviously. But um, he looks like a completely different player. As in, I mean, he must be, oh, I don't know, 30 kilos lighter. Um, he's a completely different physique now. And I mean, I, you know, like, obviously I, I wouldn't have seen him running around in Queensland club, but has he, I mean, he's put on some dramatic size, hasn't he? Yeah, well, that, that was the 2008 grand final, that picture. Yeah. And, you know, so he's had four years, and that was just before or just as he was breaking into the academy. It was the Reds Academy then. Right. So he's had four years of being, you know, in full-time programs, on a contract, in the gym, you know, nearly every day. And, you know, he's also grown. He was pretty young back then. He might have only been 19 at the time. Okay. So, no, sorry, he must have been late. He must have been 18. Because I think he's now 22. So, yeah, he has grown. You know, he's become a man, effectively, rather than a boy. Mm. And, look, I can see that happening with Liam Gill at the moment. Mm. You know, he's only 20. And if you look at how hard he is and the, the size he's put on in terms of height, he's bulked up as well, but his height is getting there. Um, Schatz is probably the one that hasn't grown or bulked up as much as the three of them. But... Mm. You know, that's the Reds starting to develop some of the very good talent they've got coming through. Um, Chris F. Sortier, I think he showed a few of the things he could do. As I said earlier, I thought Cooper, I'm watching it again closely, is starting to regain some of the old Cooper magic. He's still probably only at 80%. Mm. Um, He's certainly directing the game very well. He seems more mature. Um, He's certainly better in contact, Mm -hmm. defending better and... You know, is getting in the, involved rather than, you know, I suppose he used to be a bit of tag and move away guy. Um, you know, try and either rip the ball and get away. But, you know, there were a couple of good tackles he made, got involved in the breakdown a few times. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think they were the standouts. Okay. Shipley had a good game as well. Yep. So, I mean, the last thing I'll say on the Reds, I, I noticed a little tactic that. Um, Worked really well for them. I mean, basically, if I by memory, I think it set up Shipley's tr- uh, try. Um, but they used it, and it's not just um, well, it's, it's definitely not just first phase play, and it's j- not just backs, but it's forwards as well. Just using little dummy runners, um, and it's you know just in like even when they're going the short side, they're using um, quite often. You know, it can be a, you know just a little behind the back um, play, um, and it worked really well, like you know two or three times, but. It's all, it seems to me it's obviously something they've been kind of just, you know, looking at um, instituting in just loose phase play because um, it's, you know, it's across all the different players. Uh, one of the key people, that, you know, obviously instructing it, though, was Cooper. Um, and uh, he did that a number of times. And that was, was kind of impressing me with his sort of play. Um, but that was an interesting one. I just noticed it three or four times in the, in the game, actually. They've obviously uh, looked to implement that. Anyway, so the Reds walk away with the, uh, the, the, the points there, 25-17. Um, then there was the game overnight, which I will confess I haven't seen, but when I saw the score, I didn't feel a lot of impetus to, uh, to, to pick it up. Scott, I think you saw this one. Um, it was, it was the force being subjugated by the Kings, um, over in Port Elizabeth. Uh, do we, do we, how much do we want to talk about this one? Apart from, I think there was a bit of a, a um, an, an, a piece of intrigue. Game-wise, what happened? Uh. There's not much to talk about. There wasn't much to watch. I mean, the force didn't play badly, but had no spark. They had no real direction. Um, they looked lethargic, and 
the Kings came out and they obviously wanted it more. Big game for them, first game in Super Rugby, um, and they sort of rode a wave. But I don't think you can actually sit there and say the Force did this terribly or they did that terribly. They were just flat. Mm. And as I said, I think they've got, they've got a problem at ten. They had Sam Christie there, who's the ex Waikato player, who was reasonable the week before against the Rebels. He didn't provide the direction. Um, Kyle Goblin's an option for them. They imported uh, CBCS on, and uh, he wasn't even in the squad. So I think they're a team without a lot of direction at the moment. They looked lost, basically, through the whole game. And you sat there the whole game thinking, you know, who's going to do something to make this happen? Mm. Um, they were probably, you know, the sco- it was probably a pretty level game, and then Hugh McMenamin, who... I thought probably was the force player of the game, got a sin bin um, for a high tackle, yellow card, you know, probably you know, 50, 50 whether it was a yellow card. But he went off, and then the Kings just sort of, in that 10-minute period, took the lead. And then they built momentum, and they just kept going. And the Kings, sorry, the force just didn't have anything to respond with. Yeah. And there was, a, I think you said there was a, uh, a, a, a kind of a key event that... Uh, happened there what was it was it was it a no try yeah so what happened was the force brought the ball down off a line out they are mauling it towards the line and the referee calls um from the back of the mall he considered that it had stopped and called use it um they then went forward a little bit again and then they stopped again and he called use it a second time now the law says once you've called use it the second time, that's it. You have to bring the ball out of that mall. Um, and he called it three or four times. There was no way, and, and Albert, uh, Matthewson kept looking at him. Mm-hmm. There's no way that they didn't know it. But what they did was basically kept mauling the ball forward. Sorry, they started the mall again, kept going forward, crashed over the line and put the ball down. Before they got the ball down, he awarded a scrum to the Kings and said, well, I told you to use it. You chose not to use it. Now, the law quite you know, clearly says once he's told you to use it the second time, you have to bring it out. You don't have the option to then keep going and driving forward and score like they did. So under the law, it's definitely no try. People are blowing up and saying, well, how, you know, what is the best way to use it? Surely the best way to use it is to score a try. Uh, that you know makes sense. But then again, not a lot of rugby's laws do make sense. So... Under the laws, it wasn't a try. The problem we had that was the first time he called use it. Um, he, you know, to to call use it, you have to have the mall stationary, not stationary. Sorry, it has to be going forward. If it stops or goes sideways for five seconds, he can call use it. Well, that didn't happen. He basically called use, you know, within a second of it stopping, and then they kept picked it up, you know, straight away. So. He shouldn't have been calling use it when he did. It should have been a forced try. But as I said, the, the thing that people are bitching about is wrong. Under the law, once he called use it the second time, rightly or wrongly, that's it. They had to pass the ball out uh, or do something with it, not try and keep mauling it over the line. Right. Okay, well, I mean, and I think, are you going to pull out a bit, maybe a bit of video and have a look at that? Yeah, I am. Okay, during the week. All right, good one. So I'm just going to see if we can... Uh, yeah, we've got you back. You you back there now? Hang on. Logs, you back, mate? Yeah, sorry, guys. That's all right. You just dropped out there a bit. No, we just we just ran through the uh, the Kings and Force. Yeah, no. So uh, to be, 
I guess I got I got most of that ex- up till when um, Scotty was talking about the the fly half for the force. Yeah, no. So I think I think you haven't missed a whole lot there. Um, so yeah, so um, unfortunately for the force, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 another loss, and and that's disturbing to hear. That I was kind of hoping. I thought there were maybe even in their loss against the the, the rebels. I was kind of hoping that. I might have been, and I might have been imagining it and overthinking it that I saw a little bit more maybe organisation in their backline, um, and I was hoping that that might mature into something. But I think Scott, you're sort of saying it's if anything, it's gone backwards um, since that first game. Yeah, um, they look they look directionless, mm-hmm. and it's very hard to see where they're going to go from here. They're up against, I think, the Bulls this week, so uh, that's not going to get any easier. Ouch. Okay, that could be ugly. Um, Okay, and then I guess the only other talking point that we had from the weekends, um, before we move into some um, uh, news that's come since, um, I haven't seen this myself. You were saying there's a, there was a penalty try with the Hurricanes Blues. Again, actually, what I'm thinking, of sorts. <laughs> so what what happened here? Did you did you did you see this, Lowe's? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, so talk me through it. Well, um, and I'm going to um, I'm going to reveal my my ignorance of the of the players involved, but. But um, it was just a situation where um, the Hurricanes put a kick through. Um, two players chased it through. Um, there was a bit of jostling uh, as they went over the line for the touchdown. Um, I watched it. I, I rewound it and watched it three or four times trying to find um, obstruction in the lead-up or something. And I, I just couldn't really see anything other than what went on as they went over the line. And it looked pretty low-key to me. Um, but there was a... a, a um, a penalty try awarded. Now, for my, if my memory's correct, a penalty try is um, a ruling that a try probably would have been scored but for the obstruction. Um, Scotty, is that right? Well, that's how I read the law, and I actually had this discussion yeah. on the forum today, and a referee has chimed in at the end of it, though, and it, the interesting thing was Vinnie Munro, who was the TMO, and I, I can't tell you who the players were yep. either, but he came back and said something along the lines of, if the player, who was the Blues player, wasn't there, the try would have been scored. And, of course, yeah. everybody here said, well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You can't just remove a defender. Mm. And the law, the law says if the offence wasn't committed, then it would have been a try. But yeah. and, and I made a... You know, Personally, I couldn't even really see an offence. I mean, I suppose strictly to the letter of the law, you're not allowed to, you know, grab and hold a player in the in the lead up. You are only allowed to sort of jostle with the shoulder. But I mean that the sort of stuff that happened in that try goes on every single day of the rugby week and twice no, on no, Sundays. Well, well, what he got him for was tapping the ball. So, I mean hitting there it just over didn't seem anything in it to me. As you no, say, you can't got... remove a remove a defender. Yeah, well what he got oh, him though for was that. tapping the ball over the dead ball line, which you can't do. And no, you can't hit it out into touch deliberately and yeah. you can't hit it over the dead ball yeah. line, correct? So he's saying, he's saying he deliberately tapped it out and if he hadn't done that, it would have been a try. But, but the words he used Wow, were, he's still drawing a very long bow, isn't he? Well, I thought he was. And I, and I put forward my argument today saying this is what the law says, which basically says um, it had to probably be a try and it's about the offence. So but for the offence, it probably would have been scored. Yeah. Well, what what happened? We've had a referee uh, who we, we don't know his name, but he goes by the name of Eyes and Ears on the forum, who has come back and said, 
that may be what the law says, but in our referees' discussions, we actually say, if that guy hadn't been there, would a try have been scored? Which is not what the law says, but he's telling us, and I've got a couple the of referees... Well, no, we've seen a couple of instances, and Matt will remember some from last year, where yeah. what the law says and what the referees interpret are different things, and where they basically get together and come up with their interpretation of what the law means. Mm. So, so we've got a referee who's been on the site for a while telling us that the referees take a view. If that defender hadn't been there, would a try have been scored? And that's why Vinnie Munro said that to the referee. If he hadn't been there, that would have been scored. It's certainly not what the law says, and I'm going to get on to some referee marks tomorrow. I'm not saying that eyes and ears isn't a referee, doesn't know what he's talking about, but... Mm. You know, what annoys me is that the law says one thing, which says the offence is the problem, and yet the referees are saying, well, we've had a discussion and we believe that we have to look at whether the player, if he wasn't there, there would have been a try scored. And someone made the great point today on the site. If a guy's running through and there's a defender in front of him, the answer is if that defender wasn't there, there's a try scored. Mm. Tackles him legally, it doesn't make sense to me, so... Yeah, so I mean, I, I think the bigger issue there then is uh, if you if we are going to have these interpretations, which would seem in some cases contra to what how you might logically read something, then you know what's really important is that you you know that there it's it's open right that you know and everyone can see it and it's well publicised. But um, quite often, I think you know, I think when we were talking about some of these things last year, the only reason we we you know got better uh, look at it was when. Somebody who I think again was a referee, actually having heard the podcast, you know, sent us, um, you know, here's what the current interpretations are, um, and you know, that wasn't something that was publicly available. It was, you know, uh, you, you had to get. Uh, we only got because he, he was uh, lucky enough to be listening. So um, yeah, I mean, it's a bigger, a bit of a bigger issue if this sort of stuff's happening, isn't it? Um, that might be something actually. You know, we've uh, looked at. Um, getting uh, uh, Lyndon Bray onto the show from Sansa, and uh, he sounds very positive about it. Um, so we might uh, see if we can get him in and maybe have a bit of discussion about that and maybe use a few examples. So if anyone's listening and you've got some other examples that you, uh, you know, things like this that you'd like discussed, um, you know, post it, post it, send it, put it in the forum, put it at the bottom of this podcast, whatever, and um, we might see if we can organise something there. So I think um, the line to uh, Orange has obviously gone down because um, I think we've lost loads. But um, he might be back. Um, but in the meantime, we'll, we'll power on. Um, so let's now maybe get into some of the other news stories that have popped up even since the weekend. Um, we've got, and the big one today is that George Smith, winner of 2009 Green and Gold Rugby Player of the Year, um, is back in Australia and uh, looks like he's going to be playing for the Brumbies. Um, Pretty big news, uh, wouldn't you say, Scott? It's huge news. So what's he on, a three-month contract before he has to start pre-season in Japan again? That's what I understand. And the one thing I'll say is that we'll see what happens here because do you remember that the Brumbies looked to do this last year when they had their crisis with the uh, 5.8s um, and they actually got the H-bomb, Peter Hewitt, over? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, well, he could only train with them and he couldn't play because they couldn't organise insurance. Um, so as I understand it, you know, it's pretty big money with these Japanese contracts. So they want good insurance that if he gets injured while he's playing with Canberra, that someone's going to 
with the Brumbies, someone's going to stump up for you know for his contract and what they're going to miss out on. Um, and uh, anyway, we'll see what happens because I would have thought, no disrespect to to the H bomb, but I would have thought that um, you know he might even be uh, you know he, he'd be even steeper than than than, than Hewitt. So there, there might be a little bit more in that story. Particularly given that he'd be involved in a lot more breakdowns than uh, Peter Hewitt ever would have been. Exactly. But, like, you, you join us just as, as we uh, we're just talking about the George Smith news. What do you think oh, of that? Oh, terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so do I need to say anything other than terrific? <laughs> no. So what do you reckon of that back row? Well, great back row. Um, I wonder where... You now, Kimlin's been playing really well, so I wonder where he fits in. I, I think it's... I mean, it's a great signing. It's fantastic to have him back. He's obviously not going to play seven. He can play six or eight. I think he might be more injury cover. Mm-hmm. Hasn't played uh, at that level for quite a while. Kimlin's going well, so I think he might be um, next guy off the bench, basically. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, we'll see what happens there. So, but you know, like you all say, great to have him back. I don't think it's any secret that the reason he's come back is to see if he can be the first man to win the Green and Gold Rugby Player of the Year for, for two, you know, for two <laughs> years. Um, so, uh, we'll, you know, we'll see if, he, if he's uh, successful in his quest. I, I saw that award, too. I saw the photo of George Smith with that award. Was that real paper? <laughs> real, unlaminated paper. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't even printed with a laser jet. So, uh, <laughs> got matrix. Yeah, exactly. Look, you know, green and gold rugby's come a long way. Um, the, the year followed. Actually, <laughs> I was just remembering when I gave him that. Right. So I, I, I handed that to him. That was when. That was after a game on the tour. <laughs> I think it was down in Gloucester or something. And I gave it to him, and I felt really embarrassed. But you know, I love the look on his face. I had to do something, right? And I said, that was the inaugural award. Too. It was, is the inaugural. And I was just stood there hoping like hell that he didn't like throw it in the bin in front of me. Um, and but it, not only did he not throw it in the bin, he, he said, "Oh, do you mate, can I have that?" Because I I I'd taken it down on you know one of those plastic sheaths. And he said, "Oh, mate, can I can I have that to put it in?" <laughs> so I said, "Yeah, yeah, there you go." So yeah, he put it in there because he wanted it protected, obviously, because it was going to take pride of place. So um, there you go. Anyway, I think we it's might... in the pool room. It is in the pool room. Um, Anyway, okay, yeah, so that's George Smith back on Aussie soil. Let's hope we see him, uh, we see him run out. Um, so the only other thing I, which I thought was just before we came on air tonight, um, one of the beauties of being back in Australia is being able to uh, just, you know, watch things like ABC Grandstand. And, that, you know, there you go. I'm, I'm sat there um, just after dinner watching Grandstand and, and they've got a whole segment with Bill Pulver. Um, uh, which the I servo. Thought, yeah, the servo, the pulveriser. And um, so, you know, which was great. Um, and I thought, oh, here we go. This is just going to be, you know, a bit of flannel. It's great to have the Lions coming. It's 100 days away for the Lions, da-da-da-da-da. Um, but I think pretty much what he decided to do in this interview was announce the third-tier sort of substitute, or I don't know if he was calling it third-tier. He didn't actually use the words third-tier, but he said, yeah, yeah, we've been looking into it. And um, what we're talking about is he called it a Super B comp. Now, there wasn't a lot of details, but actually the way that he got into it was um, it was Wilco saying, well, you know, the problem is with these rules in, in rugby union, they're 
it's Byzantine and da 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 da, and no one can follow it, and you know, and all this sort of thing. And so Pulver's way into it was to say, well, actually, we want to set a, up a competition where we might innovate and have a bit of an, he called it an incubator for rules, um, in what we're going to call a Super B comp. Um, he didn't go too much more into what Super B meant, except I think, as I know you would read into that as well, Scott, that it sounds to me like it's the academies obviously going back to the Super Rugby uh, the super franchises, which they'll be happy about, and that basically it's something for the academies to play. But again, it's the, the, the only two bits he put onto it was, no, no, it would be some sort of an incubator for new rule innovation and that they might only play for an hour. So they have hour-long games. Um, and um, that's pretty much all he said. But he mentioned, I didn't hear it, there was nothing about you know, a competition based on clubs. There was nothing about another new competition. The only thing he mentioned was this Super B comp. Um, and then the, I must admit, the, and the other thing he said was he thinks the big opportunity is in sevens and that um, that's how we're going to, um, you know, we're even going to have, we're going to have sevens comps where, you know, rugby league teams and AFL teams will even maybe compete in there, and that's how we're going to get everyone playing rugby. Um, but I didn't hear anything, and like for example, Brett Mackay on Twitter said, "Oh, but it's great hearing someone talk about third tier." And I was like, "Well, except I didn't hear anyone say third tier. I just heard basically curtain raiser games at Super, you know, using the the Super Rugby Academies." Um, I mean, I know you're hearing it secondhand there. Logues, but I know you're a man who's interested in the third tier. What does that sound like mm. to you? Um, it doesn't really sound like much, does it? Um, I'd probably be tempted more to comment on the sevens piece than anything, um, because I, I think if that's his view that, that the future is sevens, I find that very hard to argue with. Uh, you know, the with the obviously with the Olympics, um, um, it's a it's a huge draw card from people from other codes. But I think the great thing about sevens is it showcases the essential techniques of rugby in a tournament format, so it allows people to get a taste. It's very hard to get um, players from other sports or other codes to taste rugby because there's not really a format to do it. I mean, mm. how how do you get guys to... You can't get them to come to your club and just play a couple of comp games or something, um, whereas you can get league sides, for instance, playing in a sevens comp or you can put a composite team together with a few league players in it and they can have a taste of rugby. And my experience is that when players play rugby, they love playing it. They they might struggle to watch it, but when they play it, they love it. And mm. I think that is um, certainly the avenue for attracting people to rugby is through sevens. As far as the Super B, uh, I mean, as you say, I'm hearing it secondhand. I'd, um, I think... As with all third-tier options, you've got to look at something that is going to have some essential fan loyalty for it to ever be successful. And I don't know that people really care about the academies. It might draw a few more people through the gates if they're getting a, you know, more bang for their buck in terms of an extra hour of rugby um, when they go to a super game, but I can't see much attraction for it as, um, as a third-tier. I don't know. What do you think, Scotty? Well, uh, firstly, I agree with your comments on sevens. And then, you know, regardless of whether you like sevens or not as a game, or you like tens more, sevens is it. That's it. It's in the Olympics. It's the future, and we have to use it as a platform. So, there's no surprise that they're embracing that. In terms of the third tier, um, I've been hearing that 
Bill Pulver basically went to all of the super franchises before he took it to the board and said, that's it, it's going to be a Super B competition. Of course, the, the franchises are quite happy with that because they will actually be given back their academies rather than the ARU having an academy in Brisbane and an academy in Sydney. They will get funded for that to whatever degree. So it works for the super franchises. Um, I understand, yes, they'll be played as curtain raises. I haven't heard, you know, modified rules or the one-hour thing. Uh, but effectively, that means club rugby will be a fourth tier. And I am hearing that there'll be some end-of-season um, Australian club championship sort of games, whether it's the top two or three out of, you know, a number of cities. And that will be to placate, uh, sorry, to placate the clubs. But, yeah, effectively, club rugby will be a fourth tier. And uh, there will be... So you're going to get something like... 10 games a year, apparently, out of the Super B competition. So it'll be, you know, four games um, in terms of the round robin, and the teams will go with the, the main team. So Rebels B against Reds B, and the Reds will fly down a second team. And uh, those players obviously won't play club rugby at that time. And then there'll be a, some sort of final series. And they took that to the AIU board uh, Monday week ago. Um, it wasn't a done deal, but it was, um, as I understand, from what I've been hearing, here are the options. It's the uni option that was put forward by the RUPA. Um, it was the clubs in a, an expanded club competition, and it was the Super B. And he basically, as I understand it, took it to the board on the basis of I've canvassed opinions the franchises want the Super B. We have to get them back on board. So this is the best model to go forward. And as I understand, he was basically given approval to go ahead and develop that program. Right. So there you go. That's what we got. That's, that's, that's what we're going to have. I'm tempted. I'm very tempted to go off on a on a on an emotional rant about club rugby being sidelined because club rugby is very close to my heart. But um, I mean, clearly there's some logic and rationale behind it. Um, do we know what that is exactly? What is the what is the thing that that makes them go with that model? I mean, it's got to be financially beneficial in some way. Well, I think basically it comes back to if you go with the the university model. Let's talk about that first. It's a whole new competition. You're creating new teams. You're, you're going to piss the clubs off anyway, basically, because yeah. you know there'll be so. They don't want to piss the clubs off. So the, the, the university model was never going to get up um, without disaffecting the grassroots um, completely. The club model, where, you t where you know, there's been lots of people, including myself, talk about having some sort of you know top four out of maybe Brisbane and Sydney, plus others develop later on, and maybe two divisions in clubs. Um, the issue and the argument with that is is always... We'll have too many clubs. We need to get down to a smaller group of teams so we've got the best of the best, not you know 22 clubs which fight off for eight spots. Um, and the other, as I understand, the other thing is that you know the ARC model of creating new teams based on maybe putting you know four shoot shield teams together and three Premier Grade in Brisbane teams together failed so miserably last time and the clubs were so against it that again that won't work and so this effectively becomes the compromise 
it, yeah. it keeps the franchises happy because they want academies where they can train players. So if they have injuries, they can pull somebody up who's used to their system. It gives uh, gives them funding back that the AAU took away from them two years ago. And John O'Neill, you know, he got the franchises offside in a big way. So this is almost like a little bit of a um, a peace offering to the franchises. Yeah. And, you know, they're looking at it on the basis of if you had to fund a competition where people were travelling all around the country, as the ARC did, and you have to fly coaches, medical staff, support staff down to Melbourne, for example, for the Reds. Mm. Well, and you have to set up a base for them in the first place. Yeah, and that, that base already exists mm. for the Reds you know, at Ballymore, and they've yeah. already got the gym and they've got the coaches and the medicals and support, and they're already yeah. probably flying to Melbourne, so that'll reduce the cost. And they're always catering for academy players to a degree anyway, and certainly a couple of years ago, um, you know, the clubs weren't seeing much of their academy players anyway, so I guess it doesn't really doesn't really rattle the cage of anyone too much. Yeah, but as I said, I also believe the, the other thing that they're going to offer to keep the clubs happy is to say, look, we'll do um, an Australian Rugby Championship, which includes however many clubs, top three, top four, you know, one from somewhere here, uh, from Melbourne, for example, or maybe one from Canberra, whatever it might be. I, I haven't heard any detail on that. But we'll put together a competition that might include, you know, something like four or five weeks of end-of-season competition to work out who are the best clubs in the country. And that will be on a rotational basis. So you won't be just saying, for example, Sydney Uni has, you know, a perpetual right to be in this. If you finish in the top three or four or whatever the number is, you get a right to participate in this competition. And there'll be some funding provided for that. So it, it's basically, I think, trying to keep everybody happy. Mm. Mm. Well, well, that's probably a pretty good compromise, really. If they have both of those options going on, then there's not too many people that can, claim, can complain too much. Yeah. Mm. And you would never get one solution that kept everybody happy. No, that's right. I mean, I, I think the thing here is going to be, it's probably going to be how they sell it, um, and, you know, probably the presentation of it in a meaningful way. So, you know, I, I think you could have the same bare bones of what he described and you could take it in a number of different ways. Um, if it is, which I was a little bit fearful in what the way he described it, like an incubator, um, you know, for experimentation and stuff. If it's a bit of silly season before the Super Rugby game, then I really don't know that it's fulfilling many of the things that we wanted. Um, yeah, I can see the Super teams are happy because they've got their academy and, you know, kind of... It sounds a bit 2020, doesn't it? Yeah, who, who kind of cares what they do? Um, I could see another way you could go with it. Um, you know, and again, it's the same thing. You're flying the same uh, players down to the same place. But, you know, if you gave those teams almost sort of like uh, almost their own identities, but, you know, allied to the franchises they're obviously in, so you try and turn that into a bit of a meaningful competition in itself. I think that could be something quite different. And you try and give players, um, you know, some platform there and give them, you know, some on, on top of that. But I think if it's a bit of an, a faceless thing of, well, you know, it's this is the thing that we do now with our players. It's all a bit crazy and, you know, no one cares that much about it so much so that we can just dick around with the rules and it's only an hour and stuff. I don't know. It, it just it'll come down to the presentation of it, and whether someone puts a bit of thinking and a bit of elbow grease behind it. Um, um, but if someone can, I think if someone can put a bit of 
you know, just a bit of personality on it and a bit of thinking behind that, um, you know, it, it, it could do it, but that will take dollars and that will take a bit of expertise to make that work as well. My fear would be it's just a little dumping ground and a, and a checkbox exercise that in the end of the day is just keeping the super rugby teams happy. Um, well, the other thing that's key is television coverage. Exactly. And that would be exactly part of that presentation. Exactly. Yeah. Because otherwise, that's exactly it. It's just a, it's a, it's a dumping, you know, no, no one will know it. No one will see it. If um, if it's purely a um, the, the curtain raiser to a Super Rugby game, no one's going to turn up earlier to see that game. Yeah. But if they can get it on Fox or they can get it on a free-to-air channel, you know, even delayed, you might start to generate some interest. But yeah, that's key to the whole thing. Mm. Well, and it, it's going to be interesting though because you can see that is in his thinking that, well, if we have some crazy rule variations, maybe that will get people down to the ground. Um, maybe this is our way of encouraging Mungos, you know, um, to come down and, and, and see some sort of a simplified or a sped-up game or something. But if you've really got people playing in that um, and they're your academy, um, that kind of causes other headaches, doesn't it, if you're a coach um, and you've got them training and playing, in, in, you know, with quite different rule variations. I mean, I remember in the ARC where they had those rule variations you know, it took people a while to get used to those, um, and 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 playing that way is what I heard the way that it went. So, anyway, it raises a few questions, but uh, it'll be interesting to see more detail on that. I suspect we'll see a lot in the papers to come over the next couple of days. The only other thing that I'll take issue with the pulverizer, you know, he comes across as a lovely guy. You've got to say, um, you know, with years of demonised um, John O'Neill, um, he does come across as, as, a, as a as a you know a pleasant personality. He did say one thing, though, which is when Wilco gave him a bit of a hard go about, look, where are we? Where are the Wallabies and the style of rugby that they were playing? You know, because he came out again with this, we want to be playing attacking, running rugby, da-da-da-da-da. And Wilco said, that's interesting. We only scored one try a game last year. And then, and, and, and then uh, the pulverizer came on and said, well, look, you know, um, you know we, des- we think we're fair enough. And, you know, and so Wilco said, so how do you think the coach is doing? And Pulver said, well, I think we deserve to be third all round if you look at it. Um, however, we aim not to be third. And I must admit I was a bit, so he's sort of saying, you know, third isn't good enough, but we probably deserve to be there right now. And I, I must, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't think it's even a cynic in me that said, but, you know, it's the current regime has been there five years. They've got us there. Um, so if third isn't good enough, uh, anyway, um, it, that, that did kind of jar uh, with me, I must admit. Um, but anyway, so that was the, the pulverizer um, on the TV tonight. Uh, I'm, no doubt you'll see uh, more about that. The, the last thing I was going to finish off with um, for tonight as far as news was from the Six Nations over the weekend. Um, some interesting results, not least that um, Scotland beat Ireland, the, the giant killers, Scotland. I mean, you've, you've, you've got a theory on that, Scott, haven't you? Oh, it's extremely positive for Robbie Deans because <laughs> the Wallabies unfortunately went down to Scotland last year, but they are the emerging giants of the Northern Hemisphere. They could still win the Six Nations. Just imagine, eh? Which would make it all a lot better than it seemed. We can rewrite all that history again. <laughs> you, you, yeah, you, you, you didn't. See I haven't what you seen the game saw. yet, but there was one try in the game by Ireland and Scotland kicked four penalties so well i had a phone call with bob dwyer this morning and he said i think he said that he thought that ireland had reinvented new ways to bomb tries Um, oh really yeah he said it was unbelievable some of the stuff they did um so yeah i think it sounds like uh, scotland might have uh, got away with a bit there 
Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's the Six Nations. So, yeah, like you say, um, you know, England is kind of marching towards a grand slam there unless they can be stopped by the giant killers of Scotland. Um, please, please, yeah, indeed. Our, our, our last—that's—that's the that's last ditch hope when you've got when that's all you've got left, isn't it? Yeah. Um, all right. So look, I'm going to wrap up. We've been on for a while. We've we've had to um, overcome uh, you know a number of technical difficulties to keep this show on the road. I've got to say, um, you know, not least that I'm right now. I can't even. Yeah, hang on. I'm just trying to make my uh, computer work so I can see what games we've got coming up this weekend. I don't know if either of you guys have got it in front of you. I have. Okay. So, so we start with Blues v Crusaders. So Crusaders' first game for the season. Wow. That'll be a goodie. Uh, they're obviously without Richie McCaw, but apart from that, uh, and, and Zach Guilford, obviously, but apart from that, a full-strength Crusaders team taking on the Blues, who went pretty well last weekend. Good one. So, well, that's that's pretty mouth-watering. I'm, I'm not going to invite us to... Uh, to give tips on this, actually, I think no. The, the, All right, well, the, the, then we'll go on to the Waratahs v Rebels. Okay. Friday night. And, and, and yeah, that's at home, isn't it? That's that, that's here in Sydney. Yes. First um, home game. Oh, I'm, I'm tempted, but uh, having been away last weekend, I might be pushing my luck on that one. Anyway, I I, I would hope to see the Tars uh, get up on that one, but. Um, well. If they miss out on that one, they've got a problem because they've got the Brumbies the week after. So they could go 0-3 and three if they don't beat the Rebels. Yeah, indeed. And I'd hate to think what actually the, the losing streak is at the moment with the Waratahs. Um, well, carried over from last year. You're up to nine. Ouch. Nine in a row. Ouch. The voodoo is starting to hang a bit. So if you lose to the Rebels, you're going to crack the big double figures. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Reds, 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 Reds Hurricanes on Friday night. Okay. Um, that should be a, you know an interesting game to to watch, uh, especially with the Canes. So, you know they had a big game, didn't they, last weekend? They played the Blues. Yeah. Uh, but I understand Conrad Smith is out, so that will be a big blow for the Hurricanes. Okay. But then, I said the Reds were rusty last week. You know they need to really kick into gear. I have heard a rumor. I'll give you a rumor about the Reds though. Go ahead. That Will Genier is a possibility. For two weeks' time, mm. they may play it safe, wow. but he he's progressed quite well, and there is a possibility of two, and it may be three rather than five to six that they've been talking about. You just got to wonder though, don't you? Like if they did probably make a mistake pushing Quade Cooper back onto the field as early as they did, and you'd want to hope they don't make the same mistake as Will Genia. I think he's a far more valuable commodity than Cooper. Yeah, uh, I understand it's Will who's pushing to get back, so maybe well, they will they will um, hold him back a little. Mm. Mm. I'd prefer that, but anyway. Okay, so then we've got uh, the following day. It's the Chiefs hosting the Cheetahs. Um, so Chiefs still looking pretty strong there, so you would think um, that shouldn't be too difficult for them. Um, the Force, oh dear, this really does look like they could be walking into the valley of death here uh, to take on the Bulls, who um, overcame the Stormers. So um, Mornay Stain, I hear, is back in form. Um, I, I haven't seen any of that game, but if that's the case, that could be very, very messy. So, um, and Mornay Stain steered Bulls at home at Loftus versus the Force 
rudderless with no no real ten inside. It's yeah. a frightening prospect, isn't it? Oh yeah, it could be it could be fifty, could be sixty. Uh, yeah, it could oh. it, it could be a lot. Um, and then it ends off with the Shark Stormers, um, which is always which is usually a pretty interesting fixture um, in South Africa. Um, so that's the weekend ahead. Well, chaps. Um, it's it, you know it's been a bit patchy with our internet connections and whatnot, but we are kind of dotting three parts of Australia together tonight. Thanks very much for joining me. It's and been good, pleasure. Logs. Thanks, and uh, good to have you on the team, mate. Yeah, thanks very much. I'm looking forward to it, and I'll uh, I'll hope that the technology you know on my side and and yours can come together a bit more uh, seamlessly in future. But I'm sure we'll work it out. I'm sure we will. And um, thanks for everybody who's downloaded or streamed or whatever you've done. Thanks for letting us uh, come in your ears, and we'll uh, see you next Tuesday. Six.